there's so many fascinating exchanges um, <laughs> within this book. Um, did you ever think you'd exchange letters with a nun talking about chastity? Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter. So each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host. And this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. Go ahead and click that subscribe button and be sure to rate and review the podcast as it helps others find us. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters. Carson Fushi, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Carla Mike Wick, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a special shout-out to our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky and Christian Healthcare Ministries. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Robert Ellsberg. He's the editor-in-chief and publisher at Orbis Books. He also has writing appearing in places like The America and National Catholic Reporter. Robert has authored several books, including All Saints, The Saints' Guide to Happiness, and A Living Gospel. He has a new book out, which will be the subject for our conversation today. Robert, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Now, you know, all the things to write about... Um, you, you set the bar really high. Saints. What, what is it about modern saints uh, and saints of our past that, that drew you to, to want to write so much about them? Well, it, it, it's rooted probably deep in my own story. Um, my, my father is Daniel Ellsberg, who is famous for having released the Pentagon Papers, uh, top secret uh, Defense Department history of the Vietnam War. Um, he copied that in 1969, partly with my help. It was published in the New York Times in 1971, and he was arrested and went on trial and faced 115 years in prison. Uh, he was very much influenced by the example of young men who were going to prison uh, in protest of the draft, and it raised the question for him of, of what he could do to help end the war if he were willing to go to jail. So I was a teenager during all that time, and it had a big impact on me, both my father's example and the questions that it raised for me about what my life was going to be about before, uh, because that was really one of the legacies that he wanted to communicate to his children, that there were um, that there was a higher purpose to our life, and, and we might be called upon in our own circumstances to make sacrifices for what we believed in. And, but also the example of living witness, uh, the people who were not famous and did not have access to top secret documents, uh, but were willing to go to prison and risk their own freedom uh, in the way that was available to them. Uh, and that always then planted in me this great interest in the, the power of example and power of moral witness. Uh, among other things, it led me to uh, leave school when I was 19 and go work with Dorothy Day at the Catholic Worker in uh, New York City. And we might talk more about what that was all about, who she was, radical Catholic who had uh, spent her life living among the poor and uh, bearing witness to, to peace and social justice. And it was during that time that I became interested in Catholicism. I'd been raised in the Episcopal Church growing up with my mother. <clears throat> I did not have a lot of exposure to saints or didn't really know what that meant. Uh, but Dorothy Day was somebody who was keenly interested in in saints, uh, both traditional Catholic saints like 
Therese of Lisieux or, or St. Benedict or, or St. Francis. Uh, of course, you know, jumping ahead, she is a person who has now been proposed for canonization in the Catholic Church herself, may one day be called a saint. But she was also, uh, like me, very interested in uh, a more diverse uh, cloud of witnesses, uh, prophets, anti-war activists, martyrs uh, of our time, but also uh, thinkers, philosophers, artists who kind of bore witness to deep gospel values. And uh, when I became a, a, a Catholic, I, 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 I took that interest you know, along with me. Uh, and eventually, <clears throat> 25 years ago, I published a book called All Saints, Daily Reflections on Saints, Prophets, and Witnesses for Our Time that was very ecumenical and uh, even interreligious, uh, a kind of appropriation of that idea of the, the Feast of All Saints, that there's uh, a, a great company of holy people who are not necessarily recognized by the church, but but uh, maybe even known only to God. Uh, and that became the foundation, I didn't realize it at the time, uh, for the last 25 years of continuing to write about saints and holy lives in different ways, uh, several of the books that you mentioned. Uh, but also notably, <clears throat> I was invited 10 years ago to contribute a daily uh, piece for a liturgical uh, journal called Give Us This Day. And they asked me if I would write about holy people for every day, including the official saints, but also that more eclectic uh, list. And so I've been doing that uh, now for over 10 years. I've written over you know, a thousand of those. Um, so all of that was the background that led me, and we'll get into this, I know, <laughs> a long, <laughs> yeah. long uh, journey here, into my, my relationship and my, my dialogue with uh, Sister Wendy Beckett that began with our common interest in saints. It's fascinating, you know, of course, um, knowing history and, and knowing your dad, it, it's hard to introduce somebody and be like, oh, by the way, this is their father. But since you brought it up, you know, <laughs> your dad is, yeah. you know, a historical figure um, that influenced uh, so much of the way that we um, seek uh, truth today and the way that uh, news and journalists try to pursue these things. Uh, has such a tremendous impact um, on on government and so many different things. And I wonder, you know, how your father's uh, continued influence and how he approached these things, um, you know, affects the way that you approach how you write um, and the things that you want to cover. Well, uh, you know, my, my father would not consider himself a, a religious person uh, once he was arrested in some protest with a, a cohort of people that were identified as people of faith. And, and he was, someone asked him, are you a person of faith? And he said, well, I'm, I'm a person of hope. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I think that, you know, he's one of those people who, sh who showed me that, that anybody who devotes their life to the cause of peace or social justice or the, the care of the earth, or even just care of their, of, of, of their neighbors, uh, you know, in a heroic way like that is, is I think, uh, you know, doing God's work, whether they identify themselves that way or not. So there's no question for me that the work that I've done, and also that includes my uh, 35 years now as the editor-in-chief and publisher at Orbis Books, which is a, a progressive uh, publishing, religious publishing house, very concerned about the connection between uh, faith and, and the world. And I would say that those are uh, kind of interests that, that I inherited from both my parents, my, my father and his activism and commitment to, to uh, social change and peace, and, and, and my mother, who was, who was not an activist of any kind, but, but a very sincere uh, a Christian. And, and both of their influences kind of uh, contributed to what I ended up doing. Going back to uh, earlier, I mean, you've written... Um, or excuse me, you've edited five volumes on Dorothy Day's writing and work. Um, mm -hmm. We recently had D.L. Mayfield on the podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, she's a post-evangelical author who's written this powerful book on the life of the Catholic social worker and how her life continues to be a catalyst for those resisting the status quo of, of society and religion and politics and seeking to live more faithfully in, in the way of Jesus. Um you know, so, you know, that how, how has your work and 
you know, obviously in knowing her and then editing so much of her writing and her work, you know, how does that also affect the way that you um, approach your conversations today? Yeah, obviously you said that, you know, Orvis is a um, progressive uh, religious, uh, you know, publishing house that is angling towards the, the things that are really challenging our world today. Um, by the way, I, I really liked uh, Dale Mayfield's uh, book. I actually wrote the foreword uh, to it. I, I think it's terrific, so I'm I'm glad to support that, uh, and glad to see someone coming from her background and from her generation, uh, because for a long time I have, you know, been part of that gradually dwindling, uh, you know, cohort of people who who kind of received their vocation or their, you know, their faith directly from, from knowing Dorothy Day. Uh, but she died 42 years ago. Uh, so I'm on the young end of that uh, group of people. Uh, and it's wonderful for me to, to see a new generation uh, coming forward who, who didn't know her directly, but, but know her through her, her legacy, through her, her writings. And uh, I've been a privilege uh, to have spent a lot of, of my uh, life since she died on on curating and editing uh, her her writings, the first uh, volume came out. Well, I edited it right after she died in 1980. I should go back a little bit uh, just to put in perspective. I I went to the Catholic Worker in 1975. In 1976, uh, I became the managing editor of the paper, which I did for a couple of years, and then I stayed on there in the community till 1980, just before she died. Uh, so everything in my life has built on that foundation. Uh, but after she died, I edited her selected writings, which are still in print. Um, many years later, I was invited to edit her diaries and her journals. Uh, and then in recent years, I've I've also edited two volumes of her writings from the 1960s and the 1970s, uh, the last decades of, of her life. Um, I've been very involved, as a matter of fact, in the uh, cause for her canonization uh, right from the beginning, uh, and and have been uh, working on that 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 uh, phase of the work that that was sponsored by the Archdiocese of New York to to uh, collect all of her writings and testimonies and other documentation, uh, and all of that was completed in December and sent to Rome, where it's now the Vatican. Um, so I. I you know, I, I had this experience of at a very young age of meeting a person who would change my life forever. Uh, and uh, a good part of what I have done, you know, since then has been kind of uh, living out of the impact of that encounter and uh, trying to make her known and loved by other people. It was very uh, inspiring to me, you know, in talking to, to DL and finding out that, you know, it was her her diaries and letters that uh, really turned her on and changed her life. Uh, so a lot of what I do, I think, is is a matter of you know planting seeds uh, that I that I hope will uh, you know bear fruit in many other lives. The writing about these saints, uh, you know, I I I don't consider myself on, on the path to uh, sainthood myself, uh, but telling these stories, I I think that, uh, you know, there's no telling what impact that they, they might have and what, what fruit they might bear on, on countless lives. Well, you have a new book, uh, Dearest Sister Wendy. This book is both an examination of her life through her own words and also your correspondence uh, with her. Uh, for those who might not be familiar with Sister Wendy Beckett's story, uh, can you give us, you know, a, a brief summary, knowing that we'll get to many aspects of her life throughout our conversation? Well, Sister Wendy uh, Beckett was a, a contemplative, a hermit, who lived on the grounds of a Carmelite monastery in England. Uh, in her early life, she had been a member of a religious order, uh, but really felt that she was called to a, a life of more total uh, prayer and contemplation. Uh, so she left her order and was welcomed onto the grounds of this Carmelite monastery, where she was not a member of the community but actually lived in a trailer or a caravan, as they would call it in England, on the grounds. And that was in 1970 that she went there. So a full 20 years later, nobody had ever heard of Sister Wendy at that point, uh, through a kind of, it's a remarkable story, but she was discovered by the BBC uh, because she'd been doing some writing about art. 
and they gave her a television program, uh, Sister Wendy's Odyssey, uh, which was picked up in the United States on PBS. And for another 10 years or so, uh, she became the most unlikely celebrity uh, traveling around to museums around the world. And she would stand up in front of a camera in, in a gallery without a script and just in one take uh, would give these amazing reflections and meditations on the art that she saw. Uh, she also wrote uh, books that were mostly commentaries or responses to to some of her favorite paintings. Uh, she was clearly a, a, a genius. She was had a wonderful charm to her. She was very funny, empathetic, and uh, a lot of people just you know, got to know her that way. That's how I got to know her by just turning on the television at, at, at random and discovering this completely. Uh, amazing uh, scene of, of this small nun dressed in a medieval looking habit. She looked like she walked in right off out of the Middle Ages with kind of thick glasses and a speech impediment and uh, uh, a certain kind of zany kookiness about her, but you, you couldn't take your, your eyes away from her. So she she did this for, for many years. And then when she that kind of came to an end, she re returned to her, her uh, caravan and her happy uh, ob obscurity. Now, so a lot of people knew her, as, as I said, a kind of unlikely celebrity, uh, but they they didn't really know who she was behind all of that because she was very guarded and protective of her of her personal story and her, her, her personal life, inner life. Uh, and so that is, you know, our, our book, which covers our correspondence from the last three years of her life. Uh, is something that really kind of takes us uh, behind the curtain uh, to kind of really get to know who she was and and uh, what she was all about and what 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 her heart and soul were all about. Yeah, as you said, you know the the conduit of of the book, if you will, is this daily letter exchange that you had with her uh, in her final years. How how did that come about uh, and sustain for for so long? Well, in a funny kind of way, I had I had uh, gotten to know her many years before. Uh, I published several books of hers uh, at Orbis Books, and I wouldn't have said we were close friends. But but when we exchanged notes, it was always very friendly. Uh, she was a fan of my writings about the saints and my writings about Dorothy Day, whom she revered and had endorsed several of my books. Uh, I never imagined for a moment that that we would. You know, become really intimate. Uh, in fact, in one letter she wrote to me, I enjoy writing to you, uh, but if I am to, uh, you know, live a life devoted to to prayer and contemplation, uh, there really isn't a space for, for correspondence unless it's about something really important. And I took that as, you know, as her asserting her boundaries, and that, which I respected. And had no in, intention of trying to press uh, beyond that. Uh, and when her television programs were over and basically her writing life was behind her, I never expected to hear more from her again. Uh, but when she became uh, you know, older and more infirm, she moved out of her caravan into a, a cell within the monastery enclosure. And there a sister would come in once a day to bring her her food and would also help her with her correspondence in the form of simply taking dictation. Uh, I should point out that Sister Wendy's own handwriting was absolutely uh, unreadable, ins inscrutable, illegible. Uh, you could only make out you know, a small fraction of what she was saying. So that was one way of deterring uh, correspondence. But now she would dictate uh, letters to, or emails to, to Sister Leslie. Uh, and the first uh, you know, breakthrough for us just came because she sent me an Easter card uh, which she often you know, did at Easter and Christmas. She would send out cards to friends. And this card was returned because our our postal address had changed. So she, uh, Sister Leslie wrote to just get the, the the new address. And I wrote back and I said, oh, please give my you know greetings to Sister Wendy. Uh, tell her that we're, we're publishing a book of the letters of Vincent van Gogh. I think she'd find that interesting. Well, the next thing you know, I got a response from Sister Wendy asking about that and expressing a lot of interest in this. Uh, didn't surprise me. Uh, what surprised me is when I wrote back that then she wrote again the next day. Uh, and so I wrote back and then the next day again. And before long, it was, uh, you know, it was going deeper and deeper. We were 
really exchanging initially uh, thoughts about uh, books and about uh, our common interest in the saints. Uh, I, I was given, uh, invited to give a talk somewhere on my five favorite saints, and I, I told her, here's the five I would pick. Who, who would you pick? And, and, and you know, she, this was, for her, a, a conversation about things that really mattered. Uh, but before long, you know, you know, in a matter of weeks, and I couldn't believe this was going on day after day, uh, after, you know, she had years before had kind of closed the door on that, uh, it became something that was really changing both of our lives. Uh, I would wake up every morning uh, to my new letter from Sister Wendy, and they would be uh, not just about about saints or things like that. I began to share more about my own personal life, and that kind of vulnerability seemed to invite a response from her. Uh, and before long, it became you know it was there was something very maternal about her care and her love for me and interest in everything about my life. Uh, and I began to bring out a capacity in her to think more about her own life and her own inner story, which is something that she had very studiously avoided, uh, you know, for the most part in her life. Uh, and this was, you know, she had mentioned to me in the beginning that she had a terminal illness, a hardening of her lungs that made it increasingly difficult for her to speak. And I think she realized or, you know, understood that she didn't have a, a great deal of time left. Uh, of course, that made it all the more remarkable to me that she intended to use that precious limited time in sharing so much with me. Uh, but maybe there was a maybe they were not unrelated. You know, the, to point out to our audience, uh, she she passed in December of 2018. So we're not talking about, you know, mail correspondence with somebody decades ago. Um, <laughs> you know. What is it about handwriting a note to someone uh, and so consistently over time that, you know, fosters this this kind of relationship that that maybe we're missing often in our life because we're, you know, we need the quick answer in a text or an email or social media exchange? Well, if I, if I wasn't clear, our, our correspondence was entirely by email. Uh, that's why we were able to, it was so voluminous. Uh, and on such a, if I had to wait for a week or so, ten days for a, for a response, there'd be very few, many fewer letters. So her earlier letters were all handwritten, uh, and I I had mixed feelings about receiving them. I would, first I was thrilled, but then I they were so frustrating because I could only make out a small fraction of what she was actually trying to say. Um, so through the letters, the emails that she dictated, suddenly she had a voice, uh, and it uh, in encouraged us, I think, both to write it at greater length, though uh, neither of us, I think, you know, deliberated uh, a great deal on what we were writing. It was almost like a conversation uh, in which, you know, in real time, we were able to communicate with one another. Uh, and this lasted for, you know, almost three years, uh, on, as you say, until her death in December of, of 2018. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Christian Healthcare Ministries. You want to create a strong Christian family that will uphold one another through thick and thin. What if healthcare worked the same way? With Christian Healthcare Ministries, budget-friendly, compassionate care is within your reach. CHM empowers you to pursue excellence in healthcare without added stress or the need to cut corners. Whether you're looking for a comprehensive maternity program or the flexibility to choose your own providers, CHM has options to fit your family's specific needs. As the nation's first and longest serving health cost sharing ministry, you can rest assured knowing that you are making a difference in the lives of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Plus, you'll receive all the faith-based support of joining the larger CHM family. Encouragement and spiritual resources created for you and your little ones is just the beginning sounds different it's by design join hundreds of thousands of members and discover the biblical solutions to your health care costs to learn more visit chministries.org since 2016 cbf has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter these stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the united states and the world we are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, 
questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. Her life um, ended, you know, at the remarkable age of, of 88. Um, she was born in South Africa uh, in 1930. This is a woman who experienced the, the tumult of her era, the Great Depression, the toxic culture that would lead to apartheid, World War II, the Cold War, and so much more, you know, experiences such uh, such as these things will either strengthen, restrict, or defeat you. Um, how did she allow these matters to bolster her work and her calling? Uh, I think it's fair to say that they didn't affect her uh, at all. <laughs> Sister Wendy uh, was, uh, she acknowledged with some embarrassment, really, that for most of her life, she'd been completely unaware and uninterested, really, in 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 wider history or what was going on in the world. At one point, I I said, you know, not trying to challenge you, but but did you have much awareness of apartheid? And she said, uh, she said, really, not not at all. I said, I'm embarrassed to to admit that. She was a child when her family moved to uh, Scotland, and she uh, spent a good deal of her her childhood in in, in Great Britain. Uh, that's where she entered a convent when she was 16. Uh, and she assumed that in doing that, that she was going to be living a life entirely uh, focused on God. Uh, and so she had no real need to pay much attention to to, to the rest of the world. Um, she she discovered too late that she had picked a um, a teaching order. She didn't really know the difference. Those were the nuns who had who had taught her in her school. And she didn't really comprehend that that would mean it wasn't a life all devoted to to prayer and contemplation, which was what she sort of imagined. Uh, as a very early child, she 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 had this overwhelming sense of the presence of God, and she said that it, it was so all all encompassing that she really didn't have space very much for other people. She didn't pay attention really to her siblings. She didn't have friends. Uh, she assumed that that she, you know she was really by by temperament as well as calling, uh, you know, had this vocation to uh, to a solitary uh, contemplative life. Um, teaching was uh, very uncongenial. Eventually, she was sent back to uh, South Africa and taught in schools there. Uh, but she had uh, essentially no uh, relationship to to the social, uh, you know, events there. I mean, she was in 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 England during during World War Two, uh, but again. Uh, I don't think it really penetrated uh, very much in her consciousness. So that was one of the funny things, you know, between us, because I here I I come from this background, which my growing up, my childhood, my 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 life has been uh, so uh, overdetermined by awareness from a very young age, uh, with war and protest and social justice and and uh, poverty and, and and these things and, and affecting you know the the work that I do at Orbis, et cetera. And so there was something almost exotic uh, about the concerns and the perspectives that I brought to her. And I think that became something that interested her a lot because as a you know mature and holy person, she realized that it was not entirely uh, admirable to uh, to uh, have so little awareness or 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 consciousness of 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 the world. So she said that that I kind of brought the world to her, her hermitage. Uh, in that sense, she was very different from Thomas Merton, for instance, who uh, also a, a monk and a hermit, who at a certain point underwent a, a, a deep conversion or transformation in his understanding of his vocation, uh, as he became uh, deeply concerned with uh, with the world and the need for. Uh, compassionate outreach uh, to both to those who are suffering, those who are trying to make the world better, and that was you know affected in his writing. Now she was obsessed with Thomas Merton, but she always <laughs> felt those writings of his were were not his best and not particularly important or memorable, and she didn't have you know particular interest in them. At one point she said, 
you must uh, accept the fact, uh, dear Robert, that I that I I I, I realize that <clears throat> justice and peace and all these things are very good, but I just kind of take them for granted, and I leave it in God's hands. And and if you think that that makes me unworthy of you know of your attention, I, I would totally understand. But um, but she she offered me you know in exchange so much more uh, because there was this. Uh, just a depth uh, to her and this exceptional kind of sensitivity to uh, the ultimate dimension of things. And that's what she brought out so much in her her response to art. And I think that people picked up on that. This was, uh, here is somebody who lived this extremely austere, uh, some would say self-deprived uh, life, you know, no music, no television, no movies, no friends, no, you know. Uh, but she could look at a painting and see right into the heart of what that artist was 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 saying. And maybe even things that the artist didn't realize that they were saying. And so deeply into the the mystery of of life and and of and of God's love and grace. Uh, so in some ways she lived in a world that was so much bigger and deeper. Than you know my superficial obsession with what's on the evening news or the newspaper and how much time I I I, I spend on that. Uh, she said at one point when we were talking about Donald Trump and she said, "Well, you know, you have two choices. Seem to me, you 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 could you can you know if you feel there's some action you can take, uh, then by all means do that. If you if you don't feel or know or you're not called to that kind of action, maybe you have to just put this." Uh, you know, great worry and obsession you have on the altar and, and offer it to God. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, but certainly uh, there, there was an exchange of gifts, let's put it that way, uh, that I brought something that was new to her. She brought something that was definitely new to me. I'm so glad you brought up the Thomas Burton piece. That was actually one of my next questions, but you <laughs> wouldn't answered it. But you know, I think the fascinating aspect of her life, uh, kind of the hermitage nature of uh, who she was, it reminds me a lot. Of, I recently read uh, Michael Finkel's book on um, uh, The Stranger in the Woods. It's a, a story of this guy that essentially lived as a hermit for 27 years, not coming across anybody uh, in those 27 years uh, in the woods. I believe it was woods of uh, Vermont or Maine. Um, and it, you know, in his ultimate examination was just kind of this look uh, at an individual, how, you know, many would argue that are woven into our DNA is a desire to belong, a desire to be relationally connected with other people. And yet some people, um, don't have that same, um, you know, uh, levels of, of brain chemicals that push us to desire to connect it, to belong and to, to not feel rejection. Um, and I wonder if, if that was the case for her, you know, a person who, who was completely content in herself and her faith, uh, all, all by herself, you know, and didn't have to be connected with other people. I think that, um, you know, I thought a lot about this and, and I think I, I drew her to thinking about it too, because she took it so for granted it's sort of like, you know, when you have perfect pitch or something like that, and you you don't realize that that's something that everybody doesn't have. Or, you know, if you're colorblind and you, and you don't see something that, that other people take for granted. Uh, she had a, uh, a gift for uh, solitude and contemplative life. Uh, I've, I've even looking over what she revealed about herself, you know, wondered whether she would say she's on the autism spectrum, you know, in a way. Um, didn't mean she was not brilliant and didn't have incredible capacity for insight and and, and a certain charm, but uh, not a, a a great kind of easy gift for connection with 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 other people. And looking back over her life, she could see that that was from a very early age, uh, <clears throat> always feeling like a misfit, always feeling that people didn't really understand her, and that was one of the reasons I think she became so guarded about sharing her her interior life, because I think at an early age, she found that when she did that, people really just didn't understand her. <clears throat> now, it's interesting, you know, after she died, uh, not then long after that, we went into the, uh, you know, the, the pandemic. Uh, many of us were socially isolated, uh, not by choice or vocation, but, uh, you know, by circumstances. 
uh, among other things, I on on Twitter because I, I enjoy Twitter at least I used to. Uh, uh, I I began doing a series called Masters of Social Isolation, and uh, every day or so I would write a thread about uh, some saint or or artist or spiritual teacher who had something to say to us about uh, the experience of solitude, uh, whether it was freely chosen, like a, like a Thomas Merton or a, or a Sister Wendy or, a, or, a, or someone like, you know, the, the anchoress uh, Julian of Norwich, the mystic of the 14th century who lived in a, in a cell, you know, attached to the wall of a, of a church and never left. Um, but then also then people who experienced this uh, maybe by temperament, like someone like a, like a Emily Dickinson, for instance, the poet. Uh, and then there were people who, you know, experienced it through, not by choice, like an Anne Frank living in the annex, you know, a little secret uh, apartment and hiding from the Nazis during World War II. Or Nelson Mandela, you know, 25 years or so in solitude and in prison. And each of these cases, I felt that these people had something to teach us about, uh, well, that, that, <clears throat> that that kind of solitude could be also an occasion for an interior journey or a connection with the world in a different way. I mean, Merton in his hermitage felt that, that he was not isolated or separate from the world, but that it was a kind of vantage point uh, outside of the compulsions uh, and of, a, of a commercial you know, world that just flooded with advertising and propaganda to kind of see things in their true perspective and to feel a sense of deep connection and, and empathy and compassion uh, for a suffering world, you know, something. Uh, or, uh, or someone like, like, like Anne Frank, you know, who lived in this, this little room and yet through her diary uh, had this deep, deep, you know, immoral life uh, that uh, as an observer and as a as, a, as, as somebody with, you know, just within the four walls of a, of a little apartment living with the, her family and some friends, neighbors, uh, saw things, you know, in their kind of ultimate dimension. Um, or, or Emily Dickinson, you know, who, who <clears throat> famous uh, introvert and kind of a hermit who lived in, in her house in, in Amherst, wrote all this incredible poetry about, about, about nature and who, uh, and who really saw every moment as a kind of a harbor that opened up into infinity um, and she said you know she wrote this this poem about about you know some people go to church i i i i worship you know by staying at home and she you know and she talked about kind of going to heaven all along you know uh, not just when we die and that was you know it, it took me it, it it was a different perspective as i began to think about people like that for understanding uh sister wendy uh, because I, I saw that she was also a great teacher of this idea that 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 uh, that a lot of that kind of connection that we have often with the, the rest of the world is actually a disconnection from ourselves and a way of connecting with other people and connecting with the world in very superficial uh, ways on the surface, uh, which is to say not really existing at all, not you know uh, not connect, not not connecting with our inner depths. Uh, and and what does it mean to be to live a spiritual life or really a human life? You know, if if we are constantly uh, just uh, shimmering, a, you know, a, across the surface of the pond and never going never going deeper. So I, I began to you know to try to think about you know what are the what are the gifts that are hidden inside this this pandemic uh, moment, this pause. Uh, and it was during that time that I, I finally had the time, among other things, to go back over this uh, voluminous correspondence of about 350,000 words uh, and edit it down to the, to the book I ultimately published, Sister Wendy. There's so many fascinating exchanges um, <laughs> within this book. Um, did you ever think you'd exchange letters with a nun talking about chastity? I didn't think I'd have letters with someone like Sister Wendy talking about anything. <laughs> uh, you know, Sister Wendy is kind of funny. If anybody who's watched her television programs or read about her, 
everybody who ever wrote about her her uh, her programs would always say, oh, and she had this delightfully, you know, uh, non-prudish way of talking about, you know, nude bodies and things like that. And I, I, I've gotten kind of tired of hearing that because it, it there's almost a, a cliche kind of hidden in there, the idea, oh, the nun, a nun, what does a nun do? It must be embarrassed about, about nudity. Uh, there was nothing... There was nothing embarrassed, you know, for, for, for Sister Wendy Capacity to be embarrassed by by reality or by nature or by by creation, uh, and she thought that it was ridiculous that people thought this was, you know, was was uh, amusing or or titillating somehow to hear to hear this nun in this habit uh, remarking on the human body. Uh, she was uh, she believed that uh, that sex was a a, a great a gift. And that if, um, and that in in being a nun or being a religious, you know, to give that up to make that sacrifice for the sake of God was a, was a tremendous sacrifice because it's a beautiful and good thing. She said in her case, there was no particular sacrifice because she she said she had never felt any sexual feelings, uh, and she didn't feel that was like a virtue on her part. She felt it was an impoverishment, and it also meant that. That she didn't have that sacrifice to make for God, so she said, "I have to, I have to make sacrifices of myself in other ways." <laughs> um, through her just total dedication to 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 prayer and uh, love of God and love of other people through that prayer. The fact of the matter is, across many Christian traditions, there's not only a decline in participation from members, but also the number of people responding to the call uh, of vocational ministry. You know, looking at a figure like Sister Wendy, um, do you think we're seeing an end of a particular expression of devotion to the church through um, the form of, of the nunnery? Well... You know, she wasn't living out a, a life of devotion to the church. It was a, a, a devotion to to God, to Jesus, um, and in a particularly you know established uh, social form that goes back for for you know millennia. Um, uh, she felt that there would always be a, those who were called to that kind of life, but even she was non-conventional in the sense that she had found uh, a kind of niche in which she was able to live this life of, of, of complete prayer and, and, and devotion without being a member of a religious congregation. Um, she, was not, uh, she was not a member of the, of the Carmelite monastery. In fact, I said, you know, do you think if you had it all to do it over again, you would have become a Carmelite? And she said, I would have loved uh, that, you know, if I'd understood what the choices meant. But in fact, uh, I would not have had nearly the opportunity for uh, unrestricted, unlimited uh, silence and solitude and prayer that I have in my life now. So she felt that just by accident, she had found her way into the kind of per perfect setting for her. But overall, uh, there's no, no question that, uh, that that kind of ascetical uh, devotional life you know, has less appeal to many people, although they may live it in, in, in different ways. Um, and I think that, um, you know, even someone like Thomas Merton opened the way to, for a lot of people to consider that you didn't necessarily have to be in a monastery uh, or take, you know, religious vows uh, to to have some kind of, of engagement with, with uh, a more contemplative uh, life of, of times of, of silence or retreat or meditation. Uh, he was in that sense kind of opened that up, that spirituality to a, a wider uh, public. Now, on the one hand, you know, Sister Wendy felt that, that was maybe not, that was a dangerous thing that, <laughs> that, 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 uh, that a lot of people who talk about uh, contemplation you know uh, don't really understand what it means at least in terms of the way she did uh, but I, I think that in fact the, the, the point is that there used to be much more of a of a kind of a strict divide between those who were dedicated to the kind of this sort of perfect spiritual life uh, as a vocation as a full-time occupation 
you know, 24 hours a day uh, living in, in community. And there's certainly a lot to be said for, for community uh, and certainly a lot to be said for a religious practice or discipline. Uh, but now, you know, and then you had lay people whose religious life was going to church and raising a family, saying their prayers at, at, at meals and that sort of thing. Maybe reading scripture, you know, maybe maybe praying before bed, uh, but did not think of uh, of prayer or silence or a, a kind of more mystical uh, engagement with the divine, with the sacred, as being something that was part of the life of ordinary people. Uh, and I think that there are people like like a sister Wendy, maybe, or or like Thomas Merton, who uh, who open up kind of a window on on a, a, on a on a capacity for spiritual life that 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 is available to all of us you know to to to, to some extent no matter what we do even if we if we work even if we have children and family uh, even if we have very crowded busy lives uh, and not only that it, it it is available to us but but that we should seek ways to 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 make it a, a part of our lives uh, not just because it's the better way or something like that, uh, but because it uh, it is uh, uh, it's part of our our own fulfillment of of our of our of our human potential and and, and mission in this earth. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I you know I think that 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 people like that are 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 not the norm they never have been uh, but it used to be that they lived a kind of very separate life from the rest of us and didn't have much interaction with the rest of the world and now there are people and teachers like this or witnesses who who maybe we think oh maybe we have something to learn or something that they have to teach us yeah the the example she shows us is um you know an example of spiritual devotion um it's quite remarkable in our world of 24 seven busyness. She teaches us powerful lessons about simplicity and devotion and, and discipline. Uh, what other major impacts do you think um, she should have uh, for those that, that want to follow and learn more about her? Well, a couple of things. I think that, that, for her, you know, this this uh, this attraction to art and to beauty was not just so we could become uh, acquire, you know, art appreciation <laughs> like the classes you know you might you know have in school so you can talk at a dinner party about about painters and art, uh, but that uh, looking you know with, but uh, looking with the kind of eyes of the heart. Uh, being able to see in a painting, uh, even whether it's non-representational or not, a kind of window into um, some deeper dimension or truth. Uh, and she hoped that if we practice that by looking at art, we could take those lessons into the way we see life in, you know, around us, nature, other people, look at our own lives. That was something that we explored a lot together in our correspondence because we both became very interested in sharing this idea of looking at our own lives as a kind of spiritual text uh, rather than just you know the spiritual classics that we read. Uh, you look at uh, you know someone like like Saint Augustine who wrote the Confessions uh, was one of the first people who looked at his life from the perspective of his conversion to see. How God was present in that story, and that meant not just present the moment that he decided to become a Catholic or was baptized or something, but the presence of God uh, all along uh, in the things that that broke his heart or his failures, his his uh, sense of confusion, his sense of being lost, the sense that he had that God was very far from him or irrelevant to him, how God was present in all of that, uh, and my. Hero, my mentor, of course, Dorothy Day, did the same thing with her her memoirs, uh, where she it was not just about oh how I used to be, you know, an atheist and then I became a Catholic. Uh, it was the story of all the ways that she could see that God was present in that story, through her 
encounters with people in the labor movement, radicals and being in jail, of falling in love, of having uh, her heart broken, of having a child, of, of her own sense of kind of lost uh, confusion of her youth. Uh, God was present in all those things. And she brought all of that with her. It's not like she turned her back on her past, but now she was a new person or something like that. And uh, actually, out of my correspondence with Sister Wendy, I, I wrote a book about this called The Living Gospel, uh, Reading God's Stories in, in Holy Lives, in which I, I moved from looking at, at some of the figures who've been important to me, like Dorothy Day and Thomas Merton and Henry Nouwen, uh, to reflecting on that kind of gospel story that I, that I see if I look back on, on my own story. So again, the point was not to just you know, come to be able to be a, an appreciator or lover of art, <laughs> uh, but to learn how to see in a, in, a, in a deeper way and to bring that way of seeing uh, to our own lives and everything around us. So that I think is, is what I hope people would take away from this because it, it kind of reveals a little more deeply why she felt this uh, traveling around and being on television uh, for all those years was uh, an expression of her contemplative vocation uh, in an effort to share that with others. Our guest is Robert Ellsberg. The book is Dearest Sister Wendy. Robert, it's been a joy talking with you. Uh, thank you for taking us into the life, theology, and impact of Sister Wendy Beckett. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Before we wrap up, we need to tell you about one more of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Are you looking for a Bible study resource for your church? Responding to an invitation from the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of Virginia, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has produced Bible study resources that is available for free of charge. The study title, Faithful Curiosity, Five-Week Study of Luke and Acts, deals with three passages from Luke and two passages from Acts. It offers Bible study methods and provides two interpretive essays for each passage. The writers are BSK faculty, staff, students, and alumni. Download this resource for free today at bsk.edu backslash faithful. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Go ahead and click that subscribe button. Be sure to rate and review the podcast as it helps others find us. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.